Now, the Lord Jesus is putting them on the spot. Their desire was to put him on the spot publicly before the crowd. The Lord Jesus absolutely, totally turns the tables and he puts them on the spot. Look it. You've come to me with this woman. Your desire is to see her put to death. But I know it and you know it. And everyone here knows it, that you are willing, you are prepared to see this woman stoned, not because you have any iota of interest in upholding the law, but because you desire to kill me. Everyone knows it. Look right back at chapter 7, the very first verse. What do we read? After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Who are the Jews? They are the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite within the nation of Israel. They're seeking to kill him. John stresses that fact at least three times in chapter seven that the Jews are seeking to put him to death. It's no secret. Most people know that. Most people in the city of Jerusalem are aware of the fact that the scribes and Pharisees have it in with the Lord Jesus. They've had this running debate going all the way back to chapter 5, Christ's first visit to Jerusalem. And they know the intent on the part of the scribes and Pharisees. They know they hate the Lord Jesus. They know they despise the Lord Jesus. They know that in their heart of hearts, their desire is to put him to death. Everybody knows it. It's now the Lord Jesus turns the tables and puts them on display, brings them to account. Look, at this woman's sin of adultery is nothing compared to your sin. That's what he's saying. You have brought this woman for one reason, one reason alone. You want to arrest me so that you can put an innocent man to death. Everybody knows it. And your sin, your sin far eclipses this sin that this woman has committed. Let him who is without sin. How could any of those scribes and Pharisees dare to pick up a stone, dare to pick up a rock in the presence of that multitude when every last one of them knows exactly what's going on and why it is that they brought this woman in the first place? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then what does Christ do? Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, how do they respond? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. That isn't conviction for sin, folks. That's simply embarrassment and humiliation. And they sheepishly step back and disappear into the throngs, the crowd around them, one by one, as Christ has completely turned the tables, making their sin, their intent, their motives, the desires of their heart public for all to see. That's the second thing he does. He speaks to the scribes and Pharisees. And now notice thirdly, by way of his response, he speaks to the woman. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He's not looking for information there. 
not, hey, what's going on? What happened? No, Lord Jesus isn't searching for knowledge. He's putting the woman on the spot. Where are they? Where are all those who have condemned you? Look at her response in verse 11. She said, no one, Lord, no one has condemned me. To which Christ responds, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. When the Lord Jesus says, neither do I condemn you there in verse 11, I think we're to understand that statement in two ways. First of all, neither do I condemn you in that I absolve you of all temporal punishment. You have committed adultery. You are an adulteress. And according to the law, you do deserve to be stoned. But I do not condemn you. The one who gave the law, the one who is Lord of the law, master of the law, the one who is ruler, jury and judge and executioner. Neither do I condemn you. He absolves her of that temporal punishment. But I think secondly, we can understand these words a little deeper. Neither do I condemn you. And I think we move beyond the judicial into the realm of the moral. Because when the Lord Jesus asks her in verse 10, has no one condemned you? And she replies in verse 11, no one, Lord. There is implicit in her response an admission of guilt. She does not say, and this is extremely important, folks. She does not say, hey, why would anybody condemn me? I haven't done anything wrong. No, she simply says, no one, Lord. Implying what? That she is fully aware of her sin of her guilt, and the fact that she deserves condemnation. And yet the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus seeing her repentance, or at least the seeds of repentance, says to her, neither do I condemn you. In other words, I forgive you. Moving beyond the realm of merely the temporal, the judicial, temporal punishment, into the realm of the eternal. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So much for the contents of John 8, verses 1 to 11. What should we take from all of that? I hope as we've read it and as we've, as we've sought to get our minds around it and expounded it this morning, that, that different things have entered your minds, entered your hearts, different lessons, different truths, perhaps different angles. Things have struck you. They have caught your attention. I submit to you this morning that there are four great lessons, four tremendous truths that we should take right out of these verses and apply them to our hearts. Here are four great truths, four great lessons that will serve us well, extremely well, if we put them into practice in our own lives. The first is this, and it's quite obvious, the danger of hypocrisy. You'd agree with me, wouldn't you? That if anything leaps out at us from the from Holy Writ, from these verses which we've just read, from this incident that we've just considered, if anything grabs our attention, it is this, the danger of hypocrisy. There's a little little place on the northeast coast of England called Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne is an island twice a day. Now let that sink in. Lindisfarne is an island twice a day. Why? Because of the tide that comes in and out on the northeast coast of of England. 
I don't know, I could be wrong here, but here, here in Texas, if we go down to the, the Gulf and the coast, I don't think there's much of a tide in and out. Whereas if you were to go to California, if you were to go to the east coast of Florida, the tide, you'd see it meters, yards every day. In it goes, out it comes. Well, in Scotland and England, in the British Isles, the tide isn't merely a matter of yards. At times, the tide moves in and out by miles, miles. And so twice a day, depending on where the tide is, this little place called Lindisfarne is an island. And when the tide is out, you can actually drive your car across a causeway, across the beach, across the sand, on land to the island. And at the midway point, the halfway point, there stands this tower that they've built. And on this tower, there's this warning sign, and it states very simply, starkly, the the following... If you see water, get out of your car immediately and get into this tower. Why? Because if you can see water, although it looks far off on the horizon, if you can see it, it will be upon you before you can get to the island or if you're going the other way to the mainland. So if at this point you can see it, get out of your car, get into the tower. We ignore warning signs like that at our peril, don't we? Uh, You ignore a warning sign like that and you suffer the consequences. Life is full of dire warnings. There are warning signs all around us. Some of them not to be taken so seriously, but some of them to be taken extremely seriously. That if we ignore this, we will suffer the consequences. We ignore it at our peril. And I want to impress this upon you. I can't go to lengths far enough to impress this upon you this morning. The danger, the danger, the danger of hypocrisy. Oh, it's, it's, it strikes me right between the eyes as, as I read God's word, how much attention is given to the sin of hypocrisy. As I just read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how much the Lord Jesus has to say about hypocrisy, whereby what is on the outside does not reflect what is on the inside, and how this is a danger whereby we deceive ourselves into thinking we are something that we are not. That's the scribes and the Pharisees, isn't it? I'm not making this up. That's obvious from these verses. Uh, That's where they're at. There was a proverb, proverb. I can only guess, I can only surmise the scribes and Pharisees wrote it. There was a proverb that said, if but two men were to enter the kingdom of heaven, if but two men, two men only, were to enter the kingdom of heaven, the one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. The Lord Jesus disagrees with that. You read the Gospels and Christ reserves some of his most scorching, devastating rebukes for the scribes and the Pharisees. You consider, for example, his words in Matthew 23, Woe to you! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs. You can't get any more graphic than this. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. We see that in these verses, do we not? 
Scribes and Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery externally. Externally, from appearances, oh, how, how righteous they are, the scribes and Pharisees. Boy, they, they, must be a, they must be a really holy group of men. Here they are so concerned that the law has been broken, that God's justice and righteousness have been compromised, that God's holiness has been sullied and soiled, and they're so concerned, they're so zealous for the law. They're so zealous to do what is right. They're so zealous to see justice upheld. Outwardly, like whitewashed tombs, beautiful to behold with the eye. But inwardly, full of dead bones and all uncleanness. Because what was motivating these scribes and Pharisees was not any concern for the holiness of God. What was motivating them was not any any concern for the righteousness of God. What was motivating them was not any interest in seeing God's laws upheld. What was motivating them was not any interest in seeing that right be done, justice be done in the midst of the people. They were not concerned at all with the honor of God, the glory of God, or the holiness of God. What was going on inside their heads and hearts? They had devised a plan by which they thought they could put the Lord Jesus, an innocent man, to death. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Oh, friends, the danger, the danger of hypocrisy. One of my least favorite verses if I might put it like that. Well, I just have, so there you go. One of my least favorite verses in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 2, verse 16. God judges the secrets of men. That terrifies me. God judges the secrets of men. What are our secrets? They are our thoughts. They are my desires. They are my motives. They are the inclinations of my heart. God judges the secrets of men. How would you like your secrets put on display for all to see here this morning? If you knew my secrets, you wouldn't sit there listening to me preach. And if I knew your secrets, I probably wouldn't stand here and preach to you. God judges the secrets of men. And Paul adds in that verse, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is a man. And the Lord Jesus has secrets. The Lord Jesus has desires and longings and inclinations. And as the Lord Jesus lived here on earth, His overarching goal and motive and desire and inclination and longing was to do what? To please His Father. It was to glorify His Father. It was to honor His Father. Every word, every action, every deed that the Lord Jesus, every thought, everything He ever thought, said, or did flowed from and was a manifestation of His desire to honor His Father. That is the standard by which we will be judged. 
God will judge our secrets. Our secrets are laid bare before God. Listen to the words of the Apostle in Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You will not give an account to me I most certainly will not give an account to you. We will not give an account to our spouse. We will not give an account to our children. We will not give an account to our parents. We will not give an account to our elders or pastors or anybody else. There is one with whom we have to do. One to whom we will give an account. God Himself. The one from whom no creature is hidden. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of God. Friend, I I hope, I hope I'm just preaching to the back wall this morning. I hope I'm preaching to the converted. I, I hope I'm preaching to those who are fully convinced of this. But in our midst, if you are here this morning, and you know in your heart of hearts that what is being manifested outwardly in no way, shape, or form reflects what is going on inwardly, then please, please, please heed this warning. The scribes and the Pharisees, woe to you. That that is one of the most shocking statements in all of Scripture. Woe to you. What does it mean? Cursed are you. That's what he means. What does it mean to be cursed? It's the opposite of being blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to have God's countenance, the countenance of his faith shining upon us, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness toward us. Therefore, what does it mean to be cursed? It is the opposite of that. It is to have God's face hidden from us. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, the danger of Hypocrisy. I see that in these verses. Oh, I pray, God, you see that in these verses this morning. The second lesson is this. It's pretty obvious as well. The nature of repentance. The nature of repentance. We have a, we have a marked contrast in these verses. Over here, think this through with me. Over here, we have the scribes and Pharisees. We're pretty familiar with them now. And over here, we have this woman caught in adultery. The Lord Jesus confronts both with their sin. But notice the marked contrast in their response. The Lord Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees with their sin. Again, reading from verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And within seconds, within minutes, they have sheepishly disappeared in the crowd. They have been confronted face to face with their sin. They disappear. Why? Oh, because they're under such conviction for sin. No, they're simply embarrassed, ashamed, humiliated because they've lost the fight. And so they know they just can't stand there with their mouths sort of swaying in the breeze, dumbfounded as the Lord Jesus has called them out and put them on display. And so they disappear. There is no repentance. There is no admission of sin. No desire to turn from sin. And in marked contrast, we have the woman caught in adultery over here. And they already pointed you down this road, but let me take you further down it as we consider her words there in verse 11 in response to Christ's question. Has no one condemned you? How does she respond? No one, Lord. That, that, that is a profound response. 
She does not say, hold on a second, let's back up the wagon. I shouldn't be here in the first place. What do you mean no one condemns? Of course no one condemns me. There's no reason anybody should condemn me. That's not a response. Nor does she say, hang on a second, it takes two to tango. Where's the man? Where's that fellow? Where's that guy? He's as complicit in this as I am, perhaps more so being the man. He duped me. He deceived me. Ultimately, how can I be held responsible? Where's he? She doesn't start blaming her parents. Well, I had a really terrible example growing up set before me. And I don't know any better. The apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree. And so I'm simply doing as I have seen. And how can I be held responsible or Accountable for that. There is none of it. There are simply these three words. No one, Lord. Oozing with significance. She is firstly admitting her guilt. This is so hard for us to do. It's hard for me to do. It's hard for all of us to do to admit our guilt. I was reading a while back a book by William MacDonald. And in it, he shares a number of, uh, a number of explanations that had been submitted to an auto insurance company. People who had wrecked their car and so had to fill out the forms and submit the forms and explain what happened. Listen to a few of these. They're just unbelievable. The pedestrian had no idea which way to turn, so I ran over him. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve when it struck my front end. Oh, we go through life like that. That is us to a T. That describes us bang on. We will blame anything and Everything within sight. Not so with this woman. There is an admission of guilt. She had sinned. And she knew she stood condemned. And notice secondly, notice secondly, not only does she admit her guilt, but there is a turning from sin implicit in Christ's response. The last thing we read in verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. There are, right there in those verses, the two indispensable marks, characteristics of true repentance. There is no repentance without a full, unqualified admission of guilt. And there is no true repentance apart from a turning from sin. It's remarkable. The words, I have sinned. That's an admission of guilt. I have sinned. Eight people in Scripture uttered those words. I, mean, I like to do math once in a while. I found eight men who said those words. Only two of them repented. Eight men who uttered those words. I have sinned. An admission of guilt. But only two who truly repented. Listen to this list. Pharaoh said, I have sinned. Balaam said, I have sinned. Achan said it. Saul, Shimei, 
and Judas. All of them to a man. I have sinned. A confession of sin, an admission of guilt, apart from a turning from sin, is not repentance. It is merely remorse. Huge difference is the difference between heaven and hell. Let me repeat that. A confession of sin without, divorced from, separated from, a turning from sin is not repentance. It is merely remorse. Our society is full of remorseful people. But true repentance involves this turning from sin to God. We see it. We see it so clearly in the example of Saul. There he is on that one particular occasion chasing David. And David is hiding in the wilderness. He's hiding in the inner recesses of a cave. Saul is tired. He enters into the cave to relieve himself, falls asleep. David creeps forward in the cave, cuts a piece of his garment, isn't it? And then he just hides again in the back of the cave, waits for Saul to wake up. He leaves the cave. David chases after him. King Saul, what do I have here? And do you remember Saul's response? Oh, David, you are more righteous than I. An admission of guilt, right? What's Saul doing in the very next chapter? He's chasing David again. And there they are in the wilderness again. And Saul is sleeping, with his, surrounded by his army, and David with two of his mighty men. They sneak into the camp in the midst and quiet of the night, and they take Saul's spear and water jug, if memory serves me correctly. And then at the dawn of the next day, David stands on the rock. Saul, what do I have here? I could have killed you. You were in the palm of my hand to do with you whatever I desire to do. And wait for it. Here was Saul's cry. I have sinned. What's Saul doing in the very next chapter? Chasing David again. You see, there are two marks of repentance. There is, yes, an unqualified admission of guilt. And there is, yes, a turning from sin. If I could go back and change that, I would. I can't go back and change that. And so I turn to a merciful God. A God who has put on display His bountiful mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I cling to His mercy in Christ. Calvin puts it as follows. Repentance is displeasure at sin. Arising out of reverence for God. And it produces at the same time a love and a desire for righteousness. The nature of repentance. The third lesson that grabs my attention from these verses is as follows. The beauty, the absolute beauty of forgiveness, of forgiveness. We see it right there. It's just packed into Christ's words in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. How can the Lord Jesus say that? Here is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Here is a woman who stands condemned. Here is a woman who deserves to be punished. Here is a woman who has flagrantly violated the law of God, God's holiness and God's righteousness. She has offended God. Please be very clear about this. 
How can the Lord Jesus then look her in the eye and say to her, neither do I condemn you? On what basis, on what foundation can he utter those words? These aren't merely empty words. The answer is found, are they not? Is it not? In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, that is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has done what the law could never do. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us our need of righteousness. But the law can't give us that righteousness. Why? It's made weak by flesh, human flesh, human nature. We are sinners by nature. And because we are sinners by nature, the law cannot give us what it requires of us. But what the law could never do, God has done. How? He has condemned sin in the likeness of sinful flesh that is the incarnation of the Son of God who was sent for sin by His sacrifice at Calvary's cross where He bore our condemnation. There is forgiveness. Forgiveness that flows from the throne of mercy to all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness Beautiful word. Listen to the words of Isaiah 44:22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a mist. You think of that fog or mist that has set upon the land. And then that noonday sun simply burns away the fog, burns away the mist. That's the analogy. I've blotted out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a mist. Or Micah chapter 7, verse 19. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Or how about this one? Jeremiah 31, 34. I will remember your sins no more. It doesn't mean God is forgetful. That's not what Jeremiah is talking about there as God himself declares it. I will remember your sins no more. It does not literally mean God forgets. God cannot forget. It means this, that God does not hold our sin against us. Why? Because he has already held it against his son. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me move quickly and share with you quickly the fourth lesson that comes out of these verses. The wonder of mercy. The wonder of mercy. Again, verse 11. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The wonder of mercy or the wonder of loving kindness. Christ Christ did not cast aside that Samaritan woman who met him at the well, that woman who had had five husbands, did not cast her aside. 
Christ did not cast aside that prostitute who came into the house and wept her tears and allowed her tears to drop upon his feet and then proceeded to dry his feet with the very hair of her head. Lord Jesus did not cast her away. Lord Jesus did not cast aside that woman with the discharge of blood, unclean, who dared to draw near and reach out and touch the hem of his garment. And the Lord Jesus did not cast aside that Syrophoenician woman, that Canaanite woman, who came pleading for mercy and for help because her daughter was demon-possessed. And neither does the Lord Jesus cast this woman aside. You see, here is something we struggle with, and, and I pray it will, it will strike a note, strike a chord this morning. Here is something we struggle to fully grasp and understand. Our sin is not an obstacle to God's forgiveness. Do you, do you understand that? There is no sin that is an obstacle to God's forgiveness. The obstacle to God's forgiveness is what? Our pride. And our unwillingness to confess our sin. Our unwillingness to see ourselves as we really are. Christ made that clear when He declared, I came not to call the righteous. Here's why I came. To call sinners. Who are the righteous? The self-righteous. I did not come to call the self-righteous. I did not come to call the scribe. I did not come to call the Pharisee. I did not come to call that man. I did not come to call that woman who does not think he or she has any need of me. I came to call sinners. Your sin and my sin is no obstacle to the mercy of God. We have His Word on that. That all who come before God in and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ from the throne of God will flow His mercy. Whereby He forgives us of our sin. And how that should encourage you here this morning if you are not a believer. If you aren't a Christian this morning, how that should encourage your heart to know That your sin is not an obstacle to God's forgiveness. That God is willing, God is able, God is satisfied in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and is willing to dispense mercy and forgiveness upon all those who come to Him through Christ. I love the words of that great hymn. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its words. Sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of His precious blood. The sinner's perfect plea. And that sinner who comes to God, an offended God, an angry God, a just God, a holy God, but comes in and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, pleading nothing but the blood of Christ, has this certain and sure promise that God's mercy will flow and cover and immerse and fill that person 
And he will declare, I will remember your sins no more. Oh, the wonder of mercy. For us who are believers and Christians, how that should encourage our hearts. Uh, We've tasted of God's mercy and we should be seeking to taste of his mercy daily. I know, I know from experience, we sin. I know that from experience. And I know there are times we even commit sins that we think just put us out of bounds. Make us untouchable. I've crossed a line there. And we begin to doubt. We begin to worry. I beg you this morning, believer, to consider the following examples from Scripture. Noah. Noah became drunk. Did he not? You know the story. I do. And yet Scripture tells us he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham. Abraham was ready to compromise the honor of his wife Sarah by telling the Egyptians that she was his sister. And yet Abraham in Scripture is called a friend of God. You think of Jacob. What a deceiver. What a conniving deceiver. Deceived his father. Deceived his brother. And yet God declares in Scripture, I am the God of Jacob. You think of Moses who murdered an Egyptian. And God declares with him, I speak mouth to mouth. Remember David, an adulterer and a murderer. And yet God can declare, there is a man after my own heart. Sin is not an obstacle to forgiveness. Pride is. Pride is. But when we come humble, when we come broken, When we come in poverty of spirit, appealing to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this certainty that God will be merciful. God will forgive. Oh, the wonder of God's mercy. I hope and pray you got those four lessons this morning. I hope and pray I get those four lessons this morning. The danger of hypocrisy. Be warned. The nature of true repentance and admission of guilt and a turning from sin. The beauty of God's forgiveness and the wonder, the absolute wonder of mercy.